My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. my talks with two quotes. The first one is from George Orwell. That quote is, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. At this point in time, almost none of the history of trans plus people has been written. It is largely unknown, not just to the larger public, but trans people themselves. That's the voice of Aaron DeVore. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Any group of people facing systemic oppression in the past and the present likely face, as part of that oppression, a substantial erasure and marginalization of their history. This is particularly stark for transgender people. As today's interview participant puts it, quote, almost none of the history of trans people has been written, end quote. When Aaron DeVore was a graduate student back in the early 1980s, the language that was available for people to express their experiences of gender was quite different than what emerged in subsequent decades. Terms like transgender and non-binary were not yet in common use, though certainly there were plenty of people navigating the experiences that those words would later name. DeVore was himself a quite gender non-conforming person and faced challenges because of that, so he decided that people who were gender variant and the struggles that they faced would be at the center of his research. And he's never really stopped doing that work. Today he's the chair in transgender studies at the University of Victoria, or UVic, in the territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. This is the only research chair in transgender studies in the world. He speaks today specifically about the transgender archives at UVic, the largest archive in the world of material related to trans people, research on trans issues, and struggles by trans communities. In 2005, a trans woman named Ricky Swin, who was also a wealthy industrialist, got in touch with DeVore. She had founded a research institute dealing with trans issues in Chicago in 2001, but had closed it by 2004, and the relatively extensive holdings it had amassed in that time were sitting idle in a locked building. DeVore asked Swin if she would be willing to donate that material to the archives at UVic, which she eventually did in 2007. Over the next few years, DeVore's substantial connections with both research and community-based activism related to trans people led to two further substantial donations of trans-related material to the UVic archives. And by 2011, the process of collecting such material had gained sufficient critical mass that DeVore announced the launch of the transgender archives at UVic. The archive's holdings have continued to grow, and at this point, if you lined up the boxes containing all of these documents and associated ephemera, it would stretch farther than one and a half football fields. The archives has material on trans-related research going back to the 19th century, and on activism by trans people going back to 1960. This includes things like the entire print run of an important early magazine called Transvestia, which ran from 1960 into the 1980s the papers of the main U.S.-based foundation supporting trans causes in those years, and records from the longest-running event for trans people in the Western world called the Fantasia Fair, which has been held in Massachusetts since 1974. 
Devor acknowledges that a range of structural issues mean that their holdings are more likely to capture material from trans people who are more privileged along other dimensions. But it's an issue that they're working on, and there are some important exceptions. They have, for instance, the papers of Ayanna Maracle, a trans and two-spirit Haudenosaunee woman from Six Nations who was a renowned artist, educator, and storyteller. And they have most of the papers of Red Jordan Aroboto, a working-class black trans man and prolific artist and author from San Francisco. Along with conserving material for use by community-based and academic researchers, and according to DeVore, the Transgender Archives is the busiest archive hosted at UVic, other than the university's own, they also make use of the material for a range of public education interventions. Currently, for instance, the archives have an exhibition called Word of Mouth, an oral history project documenting the emergence of trans networks and communities in North America in the second half of the 20th century. DeVore also connects the archive to another facet of his work, which is a recurring conference on trans history called Moving Trans History Forward, which is happening next at the end of March 2023. I speak with DeVore about the importance of history and archiving for oppressed communities, and about the work of the Transgender Archives at University of Victoria. My name is Aaron DeVore. I'm a professor at the University of Victoria in Victoria, BC. My position here is called the Chair in Transgender Studies, which is the only research chair in transgender studies in the world. I'm the founder and first holder of that position, and I'm also the founder of a series of conferences called Moving Trans History forward, and I'm the founder of the Transgender Archives, which is what we're here to talk about today, and it is the largest transgender-focused archives anywhere in the world. I started working in what is today called transgender studies before we had a concept of transgender studies and before we even had a concept of transgender. So I started working with gender-variant people and questions about gender-variant people in the early 1980s. And what brought me to that work is that at that point in my life, I was a very gender non-conforming person myself. And as I moved through the world, it was clear to me that my gender expression caused other people a great deal of consternation, and therefore it made my life somewhat difficult as well. And so I was entering a graduate program and decided that that was what I wanted to study. So that was the beginning, and I have followed that thread for 40 years since then. I was a graduate student then, I completed my graduate work and became a professor at the University of Victoria, where I have been ever since. How did the Trans Archives come to be? I was continued to work in the field of what's now called transgender studies. The word transgender came into the vocabulary in the mid-90s and you know, published and researched and was involved in scholarly societies and academic pursuits, but also with the community. And so I had deep roots with the transgender activist community, and I had deep roots with the transgender research community. The Transgender Archives itself happened partly because of that long history that I had with the community and partly just because of serendipity, just luck. It really began over a lunch date one day with an individual by the name of Ricky Swin. Ricky Swin was a wealthy industrialist who at some point in her life decided that she was trans and that she wanted to give back to the trans community. And she started the Ricky Swin Institute in Chicago in 2001, which was a research institute. And she bought up books and papers from some organizations and created a research library and a reference space in Chicago 
and ran it for a few years, but closed it down in 2004 because things just were not working out the way she had envisioned it. And in 2005, we were having this lunch and I said to her, what happened to everything that was in the Ricky Swin Institute? And she said, well, it's still sitting there. She owned the building. She was able to just close the door and let it sit. And I said, would you consider moving it to the University of Victoria? And she said, yeah, I would consider that. And so we started into some negotiations about what would that mean. And in 2007, Ricky had the movers come in, pack everything up, and send it to us at the University of Victoria. So at this point, we had the Ricky Swin collection. We did not think of it as the transgender archives. So another part of all the people that I knew and the history that I had was I've been working for many years on a biography of an important figure in trans history by the name of Reed Erickson. He was deceased at this point, but I was in contact with his family. And a family member who had all of his papers was considering donating them to an archive somewhere. And she got in touch with me and said, what should I do with it? And I gave her the names of three or four archives that I thought were potential locations, established archives. And I said, well, you could give it to the University of Victoria archives. And she said, well, you've been doing all the work. So yeah, I'm going to give it to you. So that was another large collection. And then we got one more collection, not as large, but from an individual named Stephanie Castle, who was instrumental in an organization called Zenith that was active in Vancouver in the mid-90s. By the time we had these three collections in place, the head archivist and I looked at each other and said, I think we have a transgender archives here. In the fall of 2011, I was attending the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, a big organization in the field, their conference that was taking place in Atlanta. And I announced the transgender archives and more donations came rolling in after that. We've continued to build and we're now in our 12th year. It is the busiest and largest archive at the University of Victoria after the university's own archives. We bring in people from all over the world on a very frequent basis to make use of the materials as well as the local people who make use of the materials. The archives unit at the University of Victoria Libraries has many archives. We do not have our own dedicated space that's just for the transgender archives, nor do we have our own librarians or archivists who only work on the transgender archives. So University of Victoria has been very supportive. They've been very generous. The support has been unflagging. What has your process been in terms of seeking out new material and making decisions about what to include in the archives? If you took all of the books and all of the banker's boxes that store most of the content and the original artwork and the t-shirts and the plaques and the trophies and the slogan buttons, etc., if you put it all on one big long shelf, that would be, in our case, a football field and a half. When you think about that most of it is paper, that's really a lot of paper. And so all of the content has come by two main routes. One is me making use of the long, deep connections I have to both the research and the activist community. The other main route in is people who simply see our outreach materials. So we do things like this. We are on social media. There's some publications about the work we do. And so people see that and they reach a point in their lives where they say, I've been saving these materials for many years. This looks like a good place to put them. And they get in touch and say, would you like to have this content? 
my role is to make the determination of is this content appropriate for our archives so that's part of my job our focus is on research concerning transgender people and transgender issues and activism concerning transgender people and transgender issues and we use transgender in the broadest possible interpretation of what that could include and might include we're not exclusive to research and activism so there's lots of other material that is included in the transgender archives but that's our focus give listeners a few examples of some of the holdings in the transgender archives that you find particularly interesting or important with a focus on the activist side of the collection so our records of research go back to the 19th century our records of trans activism start in 1960 and by trans activism i mean people who self-consciously thought of themselves as some kind of trans people. And that really couldn't start until that language entered the vocabulary, which happened in 1910 with the publication of a book. It was published in German that in English would be called The Transvestites. And that was published by Magnus Hirschfeld in Berlin. And Magnus Hirschfeld was a very key person in trans history and in LGBTQ history more generally. He had an institute for sexual science in Berlin. This is where some of the very first trans-affirming medical procedures were done. He was also gay and he was Jewish and he was an activist and he was involved in activism on the more LGBTQ spectrum that was not at that time really divided up the way it is today. His institute was raided by the Nazis and when you see black and white photographs of book burnings done by the Nazis, those were pretty much all the books from his institute. He was out of the country at the time, and so he survived that raid. But after he published this book in 1910, in the 20s and 30s, before the Nazis came and closed everything down, there was an actual movement of people who identified themselves, both assigned female at birth and assigned male at birth, as trans people, and they had publications, and they had organizations. All that closed down when the Nazis came to power, and trans activism as such did not revive until the late 50s, early 60s in North America. So our records in the transgender archives of that trans activism start 1960, very close to the beginning of that resurgence of trans activism. And we have as part of our collection, the entire publication run of a publication called Transvestia that was started by someone by the name of Virginia Prince. It started publishing in 1960 and it went for 111 issues into the 1980s. This was a key publication. And we have the entire thing, not only in our collections in hard copies, but we have digitized every word of it. I mentioned that one of our major collections was the papers of an important philanthropist and activist by the name of Reed Erickson. He had an organization called the Erickson Educational Foundation, and that foundation was active from 1964 to 1983 and was behind almost everything that happened that was out in the public sphere about anything trans during that period of time. He supported researchers. He supported and is responsible for the founding of the precursor to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health on the research side. 
but he funded trans activist organizations as well. And he provided a referral list for people who were looking for medical or legal or spiritual advisors on their journey at a time when there was no internet and the terms trans anything were basically unknown. He published and promoted various kinds of public education. He put out a series of pamphlets, which were the best information available at the time on basic topics that you just could not get information anywhere else. The kind of stuff you go to the internet now and you have it in a moment. He put out a newsletter that was, again, a tremendous source of information for trans people themselves and for the research community. And I've had personal testimony from any number of trans people who told me that their contact with the Erickson Educational Foundation is literally what kept them alive in very bleak periods of their lives. Another key piece related to activism is the records of the Fantasia Fair. And Fantasia Fair is the oldest and longest running event for trans people in the Western world. It started in 1974 and it continues on to this day. It is a week-long event held in Provincetown, Massachusetts for trans people to come together and explore various topics. That's another important piece of trans activism that we have records of. I'll mention one more, but I could go on for hours. There was a case in Vancouver of an individual who was a trans woman who volunteered to be part of the people who did counseling for Vancouver Rape Relief. And at her second session of the training, somebody took her aside and said, are you trans? And she said, yes. And they told her that not only was she not welcome to be a counselor, but that she should join their men's auxiliary. She launched a human rights case about this that went through the system, it went into the courts, and it ended with a decision that she had been discriminated against, that she was owed $7,500 for suffering this discrimination, which at the time was the largest settlement that had ever been made in BC human rights. And also that Vancouver Rape Relief had the right to discriminate in this way because they were in a particular protected category as a women-only organization. So it was a mixed outcome to this case, but it was a very important case, and we have donated to us by her lawyer the records of that case. How do you make use of material in the archives to do public education and other sorts of public-facing work? Just recently, we published a digital exhibit called Word of Mouth. The Word of Mouth exhibit is based on a research project that was done under the auspices of the LGBTQ Oral History Collaboratory. And the piece that I was involved with was working with Evan Taylor. He did the interviews, I supervised his work, of 17 senior members of the trans activist or allies of the trans activist community. So we have 15 trans activists and two allies that were interviewed. Those interviews have been deposited with our archives and also with the LGBTQ archives in Toronto that call themselves just archives, but spelled with a Q. And then we have built around those this exhibit called Word of Mouth. And we called it Word of Mouth because these folks are mostly talking about pre-internet days, and we subtitled it, you know, how the trans plus community found itself. Trans plus meaning, you know, trans in the largest sense. And before the internet, word of mouth paper was how people found each other. 
So we went through the interviews and we took out little clips, little pieces from the interviews where people talked about pivotal moments for them. Who was important? What was important? What did they see? What did they hear? What did they read that was important for them? And then each of the items that they mention, we explore those. So if they mention a TV show, we got a clip from that TV show. If they mention a person whose story appeared in the newspaper, we tell the story of who that person was, and we get a copy of the newspaper articles that they reference. I'm very pleased with it. I think it's a very accessible exhibit that tells a story that has not been told and emphasizes how people were interlinked with each other and learned from each other and built on each other and were a community that slowly evolved. And almost everyone, because remember, they're of a certain age, almost everyone starts the story by saying, I thought I was the only one. I didn't know how to find anybody else. I didn't know anybody else like me existed. Oh, and then I heard this story and then we tell the story. And then I met somebody else and then we tell who that person was and how they found each other. And of course, embedded in this word of mouth exhibit are links to all of the full interviews and people can go and listen to the entire interviews if they want to. In addition to that, we have produced a video called 43 Hours in 7 Minutes that has each of the 17 people saying a little bit about their stories. And it makes a wonderful trajectory because altogether, all of those stories tell one story. And then in addition to that, I will mention that we have a YouTube channel that has I don't know, 120, 130 videos on it that come from the chair in transgender studies. And many of them are related to information or topics that are in the transgender archives. What are some of the practices that are important in the work of the transgender archives in light of the long histories of mistreatment of oppressed communities by powerful institutions like universities and the quite reasonable mistrust that has often resulted? Everything is about relationships. You have to provide people a reason to have trust. Your question focuses on all the reasons to not have trust. There are many of those, and there are also reasons to have trust. Many of the people that have donated to the University of Victoria tell me that they have been reluctant to donate to community archives because community archives come and go. They do not have stability. The university has stability, but how do you know it's going to give it care? How do you know it's going to be respectful? How do you know that it isn't going to turn its back on these collections and not care for them? And at this point, there's no way that I can say to anybody, I can guarantee that's not going to happen. What I can say is the track record so far from this particular university has been very good. But, you know, other universities, I couldn't say that about them. I've seen, in fact, collections go to other universities where they disappear and nobody knows what happened to them. And so part of University of Victoria's commitment is to continue to make this outreach into the communities. One of the gaps in our collection that we are working to close is a gap that reflects many things about universities and many things about society in general. There are some people who have money and power and privilege, and they have the capacity to hang on to their material for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years, and then the capacity to donate it. And that's what we have a lot of. We have a lot of content that comes from the people who do trust universities and who are part of the elite of society, or at least the middle class. So we're trying to close that gap. 
So there's two more collections that I wanted to mention in that regard that are important part of what we have. One of them is a collection of Ayanna Marical, who was a two-spirit woman who considered herself trans, because of course two-spirit is much bigger than just trans. She was from the Six Nations of the Grand River in Ontario. And she was an artist and an educator and a public speaker and a storyteller, story crafter, performance artist, a visual artist. She did a lot of things. So she's an important figure that was not part of the elite, not part of the powerful, who chose to put some of her collection with us and chose to feel that she trusted us. And then more recently, we just acquired this year a large collection from somebody by the name of Red Jordan Robito, who was a person who lived most of his life in San Francisco, a trans man. And by his own definition, he wrote street lit. He lived most of his life in poverty and wrote for people who were outside of the halls of power all his life. He wrote 80 books. Only 10 of them were mainstream published. So a little bit before he died, again, he and somebody in his circle knew about the Transgender Archives and contacted us and said Red Jordan would like to give his papers to the Transgender Archives at the University of Victoria. So you can't undo the fact that universities are part of power structure and that there is a well-founded distrust among many people for those powerful institutions. But if you can build relationships and build a reputation and be consistent in being respectful and appropriate and giving back to the communities and making access is a key factor for us. Everything we do is open to the public for free and we try and make it as accessible as we can by digitizing key collections and welcoming everybody to the physical archives who is able to come. It's never going to be everything that it should be, but we just keep trying to improve what we do. Why is the work of archives like yours important for movements and communities? I talk about the transgender archives a lot, and I often open my talks with two quotes that address this very question. The first one is from George Orwell. And that quote is, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. At this point in time, almost none of the history of trans plus people has been written. It is largely unknown, not just to the larger public, but trans people themselves don't know. How do we get here? What happened? And if we want to build up a sense of transposed people as a people with dignity and a noble history, we have to know that history. And so archives are the raw materials that historians use to write history. One of the roles of archives is to allow people to know, who are we? How did we get here? Where did we come from? And then the other quote I use is from Confucius. Who knows if Confucius really said this, but it's attributed to Confucius. And that one is, study the past if you would define the future. And we want a better future for trans plus people than the past. And if we're going to define that better future, I think that the role of the archives is to help us to understand, again, where did we come from? How did we get here as a tool to helping us to define a better future? You have been listening to my interview with Aaron DeVore, the Chair in Transgender Studies at the University of Victoria, about UVic's Transgender Archives. To learn more about the archives, go to uvic.ca slash transgender archives. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.